Hello, and welcome to The Barcast. I'm your host, Nick Barr. And if you've been a subscriber to this podcast, uh, the introduction might be a little bit jarring for you. Um, I'm going ahead and doing a podcast pivot. Uh, This podcast has been previously called Reading Spanish, the podcast for reading and discussing Spanish literature. Um, And I'm going to go ahead and leave previous episodes up. I invite you to listen and comment and let me know what you think. Um, But from here on out, we're going to do something a little bit different. While we might go back to some Spanish language literature, the Barcast uh, is just going to focus on anything that's interesting to me, your host, Nick Barr. Hopefully we have some guests on at some point, but uh, this episode is just going to be me. And we're going to be talking about um, a, a series of essays that have come up in discussion with increasing frequency. And I'm talking about a blog or a hypertext book in progress, whatever you want to call it, um, by the name of Meaningness. The writer is David Chapman. And um, the way I would describe it to a friend who hasn't heard of it would be um, sort of a STEM-educated take on some of the classic questions of philosophy, namely, uh, why are we here what are we doing? What is the meaning of life? And can I give meaning to my life? Um, and uh, Chapman has a really, really interesting take. Um, one that I don't really agree with um, and almost find myself instinctively disagreeing with. Um, and so the purpose of this first podcast is just to sort of empty myself a little bit and explore some of these feelings. Um, and hopefully in future uh, episodes, we have a little bit more sophisticated discourse um, with guests who are familiar with Chapman's work. Um, so I highly recommend you you familiarize yourself with his writing, and I'll post a link in the show notes. Um, but I'm going to do my best uh, for the next couple of minutes in sort of describing Chapman's approach and and what he's going after. So he's um, really kind of piggybacking off of the literature of a guy named Keegan, K-E-G-A-N, who sort of does uh, an extended um, Piaget, right? So Jean Piaget is, or Piaget, I don't, I don't speak French, so I actually have no idea how to pronounce his name, but I'll say Piaget. Um, gosh, although now that I say Piaget, it has to be Piaget, isn't it? Why don't we, you know what, um, since we're kind of doing this one fast and loose, bear with us. We're going to Google his name, Jean Piaget. Sure. Um, so Piaget was a, um, psychologist who worked in cognitive development. That means um, kind of understanding how brains work from birth into childhood into adolescence. Um, And so he had like stages, right? And these stages are actually easy for parents to verify. One of the most famous ones is object permanence um, up to a certain age. Uh, You know, if you put an object out of sight from a kid, that child thinks it's gone. I'm talking about maybe, gosh, it's been a while since I studied this, but let's say under 12 months or maybe even under six months. 
um, you show a little teddy bear, you put it behind your back, for all intents and purposes, that teddy bear is gone. It just doesn't exist anymore. Um, and then something clicks in the brain and you do the same exact exercise and uh, the kid will say, no, you know, look, it's behind your back. I'm waiting for you to show it again. Um, and Piaget demonstrated um, various sort of cognitive stages. Object permanence is one, cause and effect is another. Um, and, you know, I think, I think the state of the art with Piaget is that he was on to something. And I think there have been some tweaks to his um, work. But for the most part, he's, he's still sort of held close um, in, in psychology. And so this Keegan guy comes into play because he sort of extends these stages of cognitive development into adolescence and into adulthood. Um, and to find some stages that, you know, uh, ultimately only 5% estimated, uh, adults have, have entered. And so I'm going to do my best to sum them up. Um, but by all means, read Chapman because he'll do a better job, and I'm actually going to gloss over them because, um, spoiler alert, I don't I don't really care that much about them. So I think stage three is sort of a communal, um, you know, uh, stage. It's sort of an adolescent stage. Um, you know, we do things because our parents tell us to, or because uh, some authority requires it. Um, we don't really, you know, ask questions. Um, fine. Um, stage four is sort of the scientific stage. Um, I really believe in some system, right? Uh, maybe the, the scientific method or um, maybe it's a little bit mystical, but, you know, rationality uh, for, for people who are um, following the rationality practice um, or modernism, if you want to use a literary criticism word or structuralism right like even if it's mystical and opaque to us um it exists i believe that there's one true method out there um and uh so chapman sort of says that at stage four um stage four is sort of uh, if you're stem educated right if you're if you're interested in engineering or math or science um you're kind of your stage four is sort of baked into your practice, right? Because um, you're you're pursuing your work according to some method, and um, his assumption is that you know his audience has hit sort of a roadblock of sorts um, in that method. And actually, this is one of the most sort of opaque parts of Chapman's writing to me. Is like I don't under I don't completely understand um, as someone who's not STEM educated, sort of what makes you have that crisis. But at some point. I suppose you, you've been pursuing the scientific method or doing your work, um, but it hasn't gotten you any closer to finding meaning in life, right? And so um, I guess you might be, um, you know, a cog in some um, facet of scientific progress, um, trying to solve, you know, trying to find a cure for cancer or, or, or prove that N does not equal NP or I, I don't know what. Um, and I guess somewhere in that pursuit, you sort of, uh, feel that you've lost meaning. I, and I don't, I don't know. And that's, that's sort of an open question, one that I'd like to discover more, but the point is at some point you sort of, um, fall into a rut, um, that Chapman describes as stage 4.5. Uh, I'm just laughing because I, I mean, again, we'll get to this, but I just think these stages are so absurd, but anyway, stage 4.5, 
they're they're absurd and they're just so stemmy, right? Um, like the idea of a four point five stage, and so this stage is nihilism. Nothing matters. There is no meaning to life. There is no system. Everything is arbitrary. Meaning is relative. Um, I suppose hedonism and whatever works for you is sort of the the kind of fallback. Um, and um, most people don't make it out of this stage alive. And then there's stage five, um, which Chapman describes as a fluid meta-rationalist stage that like works on nebulosity and pattern. I don't know. You've got to read them. I'm not going to do them justice again because I don't believe in this. It's just like the introduction of so many new words that I have to learn and don't care to. Um, but this is sort of a slightly Eastern um, coherentist, um, again, fluid. Well, there are many systems and the context matters and we're never going to find one true system, but that doesn't mean that no system is valid. In fact, many systems are valid in many instances and um, we should, um, it's not that we should start to fall into many different systems, but we should actually just recognize that that's what we're already doing. Um, and once we have this recognition, we'll actually sort of incorporate all of the previous stages, both modernism and postmodernism and rationalism and nihilism. And those are all just systems. Um, and we're sort of um, fluidly working with and through all of them. Um, fine. So um, I guess before, before we um, go into my own perspective on this, I will say that Chapman uh, brings up sort of a key point for me, and I think it's a really valid one, um, which is this, that the quote-unquote stage 4.5, which is nihilism or relativism, um, is so appealing in pop culture and even in university culture, especially among humanities majors, that um, sort of the uh, development cycle, right, going from stage one, which is, a, I mean, there are stages one, two, I, I didn't really mention them because they're sort of uh, primitive and we all just, by growing up, pass through them, but stage one, then stage two, then stage three, then stage four, then stage 4.5, then stage five. Um, we kind of skip ahead to nihilism. It's just so appealing and so accessible um, and so taught in university. Um, and by sort of skipping ahead and not taking stage four seriously, we kind of doom our progression um, and advancing to stage five is impossible um, if you haven't really um, sort of been steeped in stage four modernist thought. I mean, I actually think there's a lot to like um, about that uh, claim. And so uh, I encourage you to read Chapman's work. Um, and there's one essay in particular that requires, um, it has some, you know, sort of prerequisite reading, but it's called A Bridge to Meta-Rationality Versus Civilizational Collapse. Um, and I think uh, it's alarmist, but I think the stakes are about right that, you know, if we speed ahead to conclusions without sort of understanding the thought behind them, um, then relativism is really appealing. Um, and it's sort of a, a lazy um, sort of haven for thought.
so anyway, uh, definitely check that out. And and again, I, I don't by any means mean to be dismissive of Chapman's work. I think there's a lot of stuff important there. Um, I guess I just suppose that he doesn't do justice to um, the humanities and sort of the, the work that's been done over the last few thousand years, um, which is fine because again, his audience is sort of the STEM educated, um, I don't know if I can say Aspie, um, I certainly don't mean to offend anybody, but kind of in personality type and writing style, there's this sort of hyperlogical um, perspective that I think Chapman appeals to and, and potentially belongs to. Um, and so, you know, I think whatever works in terms of activating those ideas and, and who knows, maybe STEM thought is the future. It, you know, I, I, if anything, I think his writing and some of the writing on Ribbon Farm um, and some of the writing that um, my pal Kevin um, similar has made me aware of, but actually I don't, I don't count Kevin's writing among, um, I actually think is some of sort of the most fertile contemporary thinking, um, even if it comes from sort of a misreading or total ignorance of some of the humanities writing that came before it. Um, and so as much as I hate the word meta-rationality and even the word rationality is just sort of nasty to me. Um, as much as I hate nebulosity and the word pattern, um, you know, if it's a model that's going to help people contribute meaningfully to contemporary discourse, then, then I'm all for it. Um, so that's a summary and a little bit more of the subject matter that I want to dive into. Um, and I'm, I'm weighing right now kind of how how far uh, I want to go solo now in, in response to some of Chapman's work. Um, I suppose, I, I guess I'll just start with a purely emotional response. Um, and I won't try to bring home a point so much as sort of set the table for where I'm coming from. Um, so uh, I was educated... Um, at the University of Pennsylvania, um, which is an Ivy League school. And so sort of, um, there's already that kind of uh, university elitism that I think Chapman rightfully criticizes in terms of like leaping to postmodernism. Um, but, you know, before that, I, my, both my parents are English majors. I read a lot and I think I read a lot of things too soon. Um, and so, you know, I have sort of a working knowledge of some writers and philosophers who I think are completely relevant to the conversation. And, you know, what was interesting was I, I found myself sort of grasping for them as I read Chapman's work and grasping without really uh, firmly being able to handle them. And so I'll just sort of name a few thinkers who, you know, who came to mind. Um, I guess, first of all, is Nietzsche, who um, I, I don't know. I don't even know what his rap is these days. I was going to say he gets a bad rap, but maybe his rap has been rehabilitated. Some people thought he was a Nazi. Um, certainly Walter Kaufman, um, a Jew, which helps, uh, was one of his biggest apologists. Um, I guess I should mention here that I'm a Jew, um, and, uh, or at least half Jewish, and I employ my Jewishness um, whenever it helps my case. Anyway, um, you know, Nietzsche sort of starts with nihilism, right? God is dead and we've killed him. Um, and then most of his thought um, seeks to find meaning in this post 
nihilist state. And so I think Nietzsche is worth discussing, and hopefully at a later date we'll get deeper into some of his key philosophies, specifically uh, Amor Fati, um, Eternal Return, um, Dionysus versus Apollo. Um, actually, I think some of Nietzsche's like clearest writing revolves around this subject. Um, so I'm eager to get to him. Wittgenstein, um, who locates meaning in use, meaning is a multiplayer game. Um, you know, we can hem and haw all we want around meaning and what is family, you know, what is a relative, what is a game. Well, if we seek to find a meaning, we're, we're always going to come up short. And yet, we seem to all understand each other when we talk about what a game is. There's that uh, judicial supreme court case where someone says i don't you know i don't know how to define pornography but i, I know it when i see it right this idea that like oh you know what like actually we don't need to obsess over this sort of absolute meaning because it turns out that we get along just fine without it um, and so while some people find wittgenstein to be uh, depressing or a downer i actually think he he certainly bridged from 4.5 nihilism to stage five fluidity um, while at the same time, side note, you know, rejecting the notion of stages. Uh, Michel Foucault, um, Sexuality and Power, who have only sort of read through Wikipedia. Um, Heidegger through uh, that guy. I don't know what that guy's name is now, but the, the only guy who you can read if you're going to try to read Heidegger around uh, being in time. Kant, who is uh, old and hard, but I, I think kind of a, a foundational pillar uh, gosh, what is his thing? You know, um, categories and, and subjective universal and all this stuff is relevant. Um, Marx, Jacques Lacan and Freud before him, Roland Barthes, Jacques Derrida, Theodore Adorno. Like, so I don't know. I, I feel like the subject, um, has been pretty richly discussed. And I think Chapman's um, claim would be that all of these thinkers, for the most part, fall into sort of that post-rationalist, post-modernist stage 4.5 nihilism. But I feel like that's such a misreading. Um, and again, I don't know whether I'm misinterpreting Chapman or Chapman's misinterpreting these writers, but um, gosh, I, going through that list, I don't know if anyone is sort of saying that, um, you know, relativism or nihilism um, is the answer. I think all of them are seeking an answer past that. Um, and many of them put together um, arguments much like the one that Chapman is trying to put together, which is basically, um, look, you know, meaning exists. In fact, many meanings exist. Um, and meaning itself is something that only makes sense in the context of being a person. And what being a person is, is existing, coexisting with other people. Um, and so our meanings um, are fluid. They're not, it's not that they're completely relative or arbitrary or hedonist. It's that, um, um, you know, we navigate many systems um, and that society itself is like a little weird ancient city that has um, some new parts and some old parts. You know, there's the old part of town with these winding streets and bizarre architecture and then there's the newer parts of town with grid-like streets and kind of homogenous buildings and um, you know we all live in our cities uh, and at any given time we're operating 
um, within the systems that make sense for those for those uh, neighborhoods. Uh, again, like I, I don't know if I'm missing something central to Chapman's thinking, uh, and it's fascinating to engage with him as a non-STEM thinker, right? As sort of a humanities person who's seeking to understand the mindset of a STEM-educated person, um, and and I guess um, <laughs> you know I'll 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 close this particular. Um, segment and hopefully it's not the last on meaningness um with just an observation that one of the most striking but also sort of crippling um features of this stage model is that i think as a reader your your first question has to be well what stage am i at gosh i sure hope i'm a stage five thinker but you know, Chapman remarks on sort of the patterns between five and three and four and two. So hmm, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a, actually a three who thinks he's a five, or maybe I'm a two who thinks he's a four. Um, and, you know, I, I, Chapman, I think is the first to point out somewhere in his writing that, well, look, stages are just, you know, it's just a model. It's just a working model. It's not the thing itself, but if it's useful, um, then great and and fine if it's useful then great but I think the, the stage model and the bridges and the linearity of it are so wrong uh, are so anathema to what it means to think fluidly that I can't imagine anyone quote unquote arriving at stage five um, you know having this mindset um, and and I, I, I guess, without proposing an alternative, I would just say that I don't think you get past nihilism. Um, and here maybe a Chapman uh, apologist will say, huh, that's the, <laughs> that's the remark of a stage 4.5 thinker. But I don't think you beat nihilism. You just absorb it. You just, if, to use sort of a improv um, phrase, you yes and it, right? Um, because, um, uh, again, like fluid systems thinking to, to, borrow Chapman's phraseology is just um, looking at many outlooks as sort of tools in your tool belt um, and being sort of an experienced technician and uh, whipping out whatever tools right for the occasion. And I think nihilism is certainly a compelling one and a powerful one. Um, I think structuralism is powerful. And again, you know, going back to um, the humanities, you know, for every field of the humanities, you'll have the thing and the post thing. So you'll have modernism and postmodernism. You'll have structuralism and post-structuralism. But then if you look at them closely, post-structuralism is just a feature of structuralism. Um, and so I think that dialectic um, is always in place. Um, and it is a dialectic rather than uh, sort of a linear advancing and, and ditching the thing that came before it. Um, and so that's, that's a brain dump of my current thinking. Um, I hope to invite some other folks who have thought about this um, as hard or harder than me so we can have a productive conversation. Um, and if not, I'm always happy to rant and raid uh, more um, on some of the details. Thank you for listening. Um, I hope this was a welcome departure from Spanish language literature. Um, and if, if it was not, then I encourage you to go back and listen to episodes one through seven or so um, in which I speak mostly in Spanish and read uh, mostly Spanish language writers. See you next time.